Oh, good morning. How are you? Good. Uh, first, I have to start and say, uh, who are who are volunteers in children's ministry in here right now? Could you raise your hand? It's okay. It's okay. Put them up high and proud. No, 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 uh, no bad things coming your way here. Uh, well, I have to say thank you, and our whole church should say thank you to you. I uh, was reminded of how hard you work and how difficult it is uh, to do what you do so we can be in here, so we can, uh, so, uh, so you can allow parents to sit together, have a moment, and be able to soak in what God's doing, but at the same time teaching their kids the values that they're learning here. Uh, the other night, my friend Nick in the back there and I just uh, were charged with watching the kids for the ladies' night. And this is why I need to tell you what I need to tell you. Uh, I'll just say that uh, only one kid got a bloody lip, and that's fine. But that was Nick's kid, so it was fine. So, uh, and then one kid got their knee stuck in the playground in the, like, the little rail gate, which was uh, mathematically uh, impossible to do what she did. Uh, I don't, physics couldn't understand it. It was like her knee could not come out, so she was there for five minutes, no big deal. <laughs> and and uh, Nick and I had to bend the bars to get her out, um, so that was great. And then, uh, you know, I stopped a kid from getting poked in the eye with a stick, and then one cute little boy, I don't even know his name, he, he was running and his brother tackled him, and I was like, uh-oh, here comes the cry. His knee had a little scrape. And then I was doing what dads do, like, you're fine. Oh, my, you're so tough. And I was like, please don't cry. Please don't cry. Because then the moms would find out how bad things have been going. And then he did say the cutest thing. He goes, I am tough. Sometimes I think I'm stronger than my dad. <laughs> I was like, ah, oh, can't wait to tell your dad that. And... But I honestly, I was exhausted. Uh, I had, I forgot what it's like to look after kids all the time. Can't have conversations with adults, you know, without kids getting hurt. So uh, thank you so much for what you do. And we should, all of us as a church, give you a huge thank you. And after that story, if you're interested in volunteering in children's ministry, <laughs> We could really use you. Jacqueline does a great job over there, and um, but uh, I'll stick to what my day job is. Um, we are in a current series called uh, of the Book of Hebrews. If you are newer here, or maybe you have missed a few spots, it's it's okay because the way Hebrews flows every week will speak to something different in you. I, I would always encourage you to go back and listen because you can kind of get the rhythm that is happening within the book itself. We think it's important to open a book of scripture and read it, especially one like Hebrews, because it's not so straightforward. And read it in a way that's a little bit more slowed down, broken down, and then just kind of analyze a little bit. And so we can kind of digest it a little bit easier. So, But if you want to know the very basic thing of Hebrews, just whenever you think of the book, is um, the, the main question that it would leave you with at the end of reading it should be why, why Jesus is better than anything else in your life that you would want to put in his place and why living for him is greater than anything that you could experience in living your life. He is worth everything. And he's reminding these people who are struggling, who he's writing to, who are struggling because of persecution, who are struggling because feeling like they are now the outsiders and they don't belong, who are struggling and thinking, wow, it was better back when we were like that. Back to our old ways. Now, the writer today is going to bring us back to a moment of when Israel fought that once before and how that thought betrayed them. But it's so, so important. He's writing to a very discouraged people. Have you ever been there? A very uh, fearful people. Have you ever been there? Right? He's writing to a struggling church who is wondering, what do we do and how do we move forward in this life? It's becoming extremely difficult. They've given up so much already. 
and they're thinking about going back. So he's writing to them. The reason the book reads like a sermon is because the book was written as a sermon, and we cannot forget that. It will not read like Romans. It will not read like 1 Corinthians. It reads as it is meant to be, which is a sermon. If we could, we should sit down and read the whole sermon all the way through, all the chapters. But you still want to come to our church, and I still want a job, so we're going to take our time and go through it. So you have to remember when we're reading it, it's, this is a very big idea broken into small parts like a sermon and points, if you will, which he'll make one point today and, and, and taken in as a whole. So remember that. But it, it, the big part of it is, is, listen, don't exchange the true treasure that you have for nothing, for, for, for worth, something worthless, right? And we are tempted by this all the time to give up greatness for nothing, right? Just as we're on the potential of a, of a level of a breakthrough in our faith, we sometimes, we can let things go in our life. I was reading this article, and it was in uh, Psychological Science. Uh, they published it in 2007. Now, this is fascinating because what they wanted to do was study uh, people in the, the things that drive people to make terrible decisions in selling something valuable because they're desperate, okay? So we're going to translate this, and I think it does a good job of what the writer of Hebrews is, is, is kind of challenging these people on this type of thinking. So if you don't think necessarily always spiritual in that way, maybe if you think business-wise or sales-wise, we can make a connection here for you. And here's the tendencies that he talks about. This is the de what desperation does to you when you need to sell something, and you are desperate. He says this. This is the signs of desperate selling. I'll give you just two. A tendency to chase after deals that aren't going anywhere. Have we ever been there in our faith? That, that will take me somewhere, but it takes you nowhere. And so we're willing to make a deal because of our desperation, maybe an unmet spiritual need, maybe a I don't see it yet, but, um, but, but I can't have the faith to believe that it's there. Maybe it's a disappointment that you felt from God, but for whatever reason, we will get desperate. Another one is the, the willingness to pursue low quality and low probability opportunities when you're desperate to have to sell something that has value, but you're going to unload it for less than it's worth. Listen to what he said in this article. I thought it was interesting. He said, when we're talking about where we're at in these places of life, first, recognize that desperation stems from a feeling of hopelessness. The best way to avoid lapsing into these behaviors is to work hard to maintain an optimistic attitude. But the attitude alone isn't enough. They, there are concrete steps that will uh, also help. Now, he gives six. I just want to read the sixth one because it relates very well to what the writer of Hebrews is going to bring us about halfway down in what we're going to read. Number six, if you need to, remember this so you don't become desperate and, and hopeless and do something rash. He said, revisit success. Number six is what he says. Let me read it to you. Talk to other customers who've, who've been helped by the products and services that you sell. Review sales efforts that went well. Remind yourself of uh, what you have to offer is worth buying, that your sales skills are solid. Revisit success. Uh, revisiting success will help you maintain that positive attitude, which will stave off hopelessness and depression. How often throughout Scripture do you see God reminding the people, remember when, when they set up a stone and they say, this is where God did a great miracle. Remember the stone or what the writers of Hebrews is going to say. Now you're surrounded by a bunch of living stones and testimonies in this room. We should remind each other of how great the gospel is when we lose hope. That's the beauty of the community of the church. If it works when it comes to sales, can we not see the greater picture when it comes to our faith? Last week, we talked about Jesus knows how to empathize with where we're at because he once walked in your shoes. He experienced uh, uh, abandonment. 
He experienced uh, uh, sadness. He experienced loss. He experienced betrayal. He experienced the greatest excruciating injustice that could happen, and it was inflicted upon him. And so last week we talked about why Jesus came in person. One of the reasons is because he is this empathizing, very much very in tune with the human experience, God. He doesn't just look at you and say, how could you be that way? Jesus walks with you. And as a human and divine, Jesus then walked this perfect life. That's what we talked about last week. Perfect life that no one could do. So the law that broke everybody or in front of it, everybody was guilty. Jesus walked guiltlessly and then in our stead offered his life as a transaction for us. I don't know if you've ever felt this way. Um, you know the Jesus Take the Wheel song? You know what I'm saying? I, I get it. I get the song. Um, but have you ever been driving? This is how I get it. Like when I'm alone in my car, it's usually when I feel the most feelings I don't want to feel that I usually push off to the side. Anybody like this? When you're alone, you're alone with your thoughts. You're not distracted and you're like, oh, I got some heavy thoughts here. And it'll always happen when I'm driving. I'll drive, and I can I look in my rearview mirror, and my eyes, like if I'm, especially if I've had a really hard year or even a hard, a hard uh, month, my eyes will just look, and I'll look up when I'm totally vulnerable in the car, and I'll see like, oh wow, you look like a really sad person, Ryan. Have you ever been there? <laughs> Anyways, if you see me looking in my rearview mirror, know something's not well with him. And, and I feel despair, or you, you could feel helpless, or I'd feel worried. You know these feelings that you have. And Jesus says this, like, I am with you. When I look in the mirror and I see my face look like that, because my face don't lie. It, uh, it, I see it, and I'm like, I have not dealt with this. I haven't brought this to God. I haven't, like, today just said it's yours. And I will do the, this exact same thing. I'll be like, Jesus, I cannot, I, I need help. I need help. I'm, I'm holding this myself. I cannot hold this. I need your help. I am at a loss. I'm having this conversation. You ever see those people talk to themselves in the car when they're driving? And you're like, I'm pretty sure no one's on the other end of that, right? I'm having these conversations, and I'm talking to God, and I'm giving to it. The main thing that this writer wants his people to know and us to know now is that you are not alone in your faith. You are not alone. You have a very personal God in step with you wherever you're at. Call on him and he will answer. This week in the progression of the of his sermon, he's going to bring him into another very important reminder that has that is slipping their mind that they must know. And that is that Jesus ultimately is bringing them into a divine rest. The divine rest that Jesus brings is a rest that no human has ever experienced until Christ, and he's inviting them into it. This is a rest of our creator, right, and rest with him. It's a rest only through Jesus, and he's the only one who can bring you into it. It's a rest that's now, and it's a rest that's yet to come, right? And we need to encourage one another in our faith to bring each other uh, to a point of remembering that rest now, and the rest yet to come. He's going to write this in two parts. I'll do part one this week. And there's a theme. And he's going to start bringing this theme in in Hebrews. It's called Jesus the High Priest. He, he touches on it in a minute. And then he gets very much in depth later. But he's going to bring this first part, which is Christ the Faithful High Priest. Next week, it'll be Christ the Merciful High Priest. The sermons won't be all about him being the high priest. The sermons are about the description of who he is as high priest to us. So I wrote like a very brief, and I'm going to just read it to you, of like if you want to know what the message is all about of what he's talking about, I kind of put it into a very simple paragraph to kind of get our heads in the right space. The writer will call to attention the rest that the law could not bring. Remember that. The rest that Moses didn't have yet until Christ. The rest that Israel didn't have faith for. And they failed in entering into that rest. And the rest that Moses himself said will come one day. And when you, when you see it, you'll know it. That rest. And it's a rest that's offered through love. And the only admission price 
is faith and faith alone. There is no other way to experience the rest. The rest is as eternal as the word that delivered it to us, that good news. And at the end of, the, of his challenge in this sermon, in this part, he is going to say, and all of us will be accountable at one point for how we choose. Will you choose the rest or will you not choose the rest? And it must be done in faith. Rest with God only comes through Christ, but we have to choose. It cannot be half-hearted. It cannot be something that's a good idea. It cannot be something like, oh, I want to go where grandma is, so Jesus saved me. No, it cannot be like that. I'll just tell you very plainly. This is a decision of faith that is a choice because when the difficult times come of who he's writing to, they are wanting to jump ship and they are wanting to go back to something that was useless to them, promiseless to them, and at the end of the day, temporary relief for a long-term loss for them. So he's pretty passionate about how he's writing. I'm going to give you just a context scripture because... He's writing about something that Jesus spoke about in his earthly ministry. But these people at this time didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were, they were circulating sayings of Jesus. That, that's most of what was being done. People were then regurgitating the words that Jesus had said. So, but what he is articulating in this is Matthew eleven twenty eight. Let me read it to you. This is our context verse for what he's going to preach on. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, Jesus says, in heart. And, I, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Rest in this original word used very specifically here, means a blessed, this is kind of a weird way to say it, a blessed tranquility of the soul and being. That's like real, real hippy-dippy, but that is really what it means. It means that you will enter into a rest that you will not fully understand, but it will be absolutely a place of peace. If you want to know more about a place of peace, we did a sermon not long ago about shalom, God's peace. But it means a state of being, a state of stain and a state of what you live out of. This is the type of rest Jesus is talking about. I, uh, has anybody ever done the yoga over on the bluffs? None of my yoga? Okay, you've done it. So if you love it, please just hear me um, without uh, getting upset with me. I love the yoga over on the bluffs, okay? It's free, number one. That's why I love it. <laughs> and it's always interesting. And so I used to go quite a bit, and I stopped uh, when the pandemic uh, started. And uh, I remember at times, like, uh, there's a moment always in the yoga, and they have different instructors, and they have you do something really weird to release all of your, you know, frustrations, and then, and then, and then take in rest, Right? And so I remember the first time being there, because yoga is really tough, you know what I mean? Like, especially in the beginning when you're like, and they say the poses and you're copying people and falling all over. And eventually I got it, so I wasn't stressing about that. And then I remember they said, okay, now everybody's going to scream at the top of their lungs. And I was like, uh-oh, I think I've gotten into a cult here um, accidentally, and now I'm here. And I remember just people yelling, and I never would do it. I just can't do it. And I remember thinking, I hope nobody sees me here. And then a friend saw me there. And then so I was like, I can't do that. And then they have the chimes. They have these like releases that you do. And then they have these like calm moments. And I remember walking out of there feeling mentally, physically rested. And then I got in my car, drove 15 minutes. And by the time I got home, I was like, can you believe these people driving here? Like, it was gone quickly, fast. It, it didn't last long. And what Jesus is talking about is something that is beyond a feeling, beyond an emotion, beyond an experience, and beyond anything that could come against you. It is a lasting rest, a lasting peace. The last uh, titles of my sermons will uh, lead us along the way. And every time you want to catch up, just look at the title of the sermon. It'll tell you how the reader is the writer is progressing. 
So last, the very first title was Jesus is better. You wanted to establish that. The very second title is Jesus is the highest, meaning what he sets in place, no one can change. So he's setting the mindset here. And then the next one was to reclaim the destiny God originally intended for humanity. You must live in it. It's, 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 it's in all of us wondering, is there more to life? And God is saying through Jesus, yes, there is. So to reclaim destiny. This title of this message is called True Rest. And I, I don't know how else to say it, but true rest. We have a rest of which we think we accomplished, but the true rest. But if you ask the question, how do you rest? And it's not bad. It's actually, in a way, how we seek rest is a shadow of what Jesus really is bringing, in a way. We will rest through vacation, three days, and then eventually you start to feel like you can detox. You know what I'm, taking? You know what I'm talking about? Anybody restless vacationers? Reading in a comfy chair. It's very restful. Lying at the beach. Meditating. That's another restful way. Deep breathing. Restful. For you moms, it might be when the Disney Channel's on and the music comes on and then immediately you fall asleep. Do you know what I'm talking about? That's your lullaby, the Disney Channel. Or it could be for the dad who's like, dad, why is dad in the bathroom for 30 minutes? I thought he just had to go real quick to the bathroom. It's to get away and be on your phone and be like, ah. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? We try to find our ways of rest, and, and they're a shadow of it, but we're desperate to find it. And Jesus says, do not search anymore for the rest that I have to offer you. The writer begins to write a wake-up call that rest in God is not a trivial thing. It is not temporal. It is something we're chasing your whole life and being in your whole life. So he gives us a wake-up call type of warnings here. I'll give you his five-point message. It's very good. I liked his sermon. It was a five-point wake-up call to do not give up on the promise of entering God's promised land of rest. So number one point he makes, and I'll introduce it and then I'll read it, is uh, he offers a greater, greater promised land. And you know the story back in Exodus that God has given them the promised land. This is physical land. That they're going to take and establish to be their people. God set this in place since Abraham to set them on a journey. And they're fulfilled eventually through that journey. But he's not talking about land. He's talking about a state and a place. And that is with our Heavenly Father. Which they did not have in Israel. They had land. We have life with our Father. And, and you have to understand this. He is going to begin to let them know. Jesus Moses led a, a, a procession out of Egypt through the Red Sea. We love those stories. But Jesus is doing something greater. He is leading a grand procession to the Father, to heaven, to God's house for the entire world on a scale that is much, much higher, the writer will say. But you got to remember why he begins to talk about Moses. Because Moses is the standard bearer of Israel, of which a lot of their traditions are pulling them back to. This is their temptation. That, oh, maybe the ways of Moses was better. And they have it mixed up because Moses would be Jesus' number one cheerleader. But they have it mixed up. You know, he's the most important person in their Jewish community. Moses spoke. Why? Why was he? Because he spoke directly to God. Nobody did that. I was reading a passage the other day about Moses, and God said we spoke mouth to mouth, meaning that we spoke our words to each other. No one did that. God said that Moses knew my form. Nobody did that. So I get it, why he stood so high in their eyes. He delivered them through faith to the promised land. He led them, shepherded them, kept them. Moses was the prime example of someone to follow. But Moses would be saying, follow Jesus. It's essentially what the writer is ultimately going to say. And the whole story of Moses and why he brings it up is it's a shadow of what Jesus is ultimately going to do for the world. Here we go. Hebrews 3.1. Therefore, holy brothers, meaning he's writing to believers. You who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus. I love that. Consider Jesus, meaning that put him in his right place. The apostle, only time in the New Testament Jesus is called an apostle. The apostle, 
and high priest of our confession, meaning that he is the one who delivered the good news like an apostle who spoke for God and then also stands as a high priest, which we'll get into in another chapter later. It says, who, meaning Jesus, was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. Now, what he's doing is he's making sure that he's linking Moses' faithfulness, not downgrading Moses, but holding him in his right place and linking Jesus' faithfulness to God in the same, right? He's connecting them in a way to deliver this next verse. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful, listen to these little words, in, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Now, I'll stop here real quick. Remember in, remember servant. But what they're talking about, to testify to things later, it happened actually in John 6, uh, 6 uh, 14. When the people saw Jesus doing these signs that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. They're referencing what Moses spoke about, about this day showing up. So he's saying Moses served his purpose. Moses did great. But when the Bible has a but, they're usually really big ones, and it's verse 6. But Christ is faithful over, not in, over God's house as a son, not a servant. And we are his house. Now it's speaking directly to the church. We are his house. If we indeed hold fast to our confession and are boasting in our hope. So this is his opening statement and opening challenge. Put Christ in his proper place. Moses was a servant. He did well. But Jesus is the son of the house. And so what, what he has done is much greater. The son can do things the servant cannot do. And, and we, he is telling them, listen, we're the house. Do not lose confidence. Do not lose that, that, that boldness that you have, that trust that you have that is starting to fail. And, he, and if you think about this section, you can think about it this way. Moses is a servant of the house. Jesus is the son of the house. Israel's promised land to, to, to people to live was land. Jesus' promised land was to live forever as with, the, with God as his children. This is a much different covenant Jesus is presenting that they must not forget. I like this what a commentator said. He said, the author moves beyond the idea of land to that of a, con a, a condition in which we participate with God. This is what he's trying to move them past their traditions and the things that pull them back and say, maybe it was better there because it was easier there. And he's saying, you're going to give up participation with God over something meaningless. The second point he makes is first he establishes that and then he goes faith. He talks about faithless remains restless. The faithless remain restless. This is really hard because sometimes people will just say you just need to have faith. And someone will say how do I have that faith? And it's a really complicated thing. But faith is going to ultimately be a decision that you make to trust more than you trust yourself. It will, God will have to earn that level of influence in your life that you will trust him and where he leads you to go. Hope in God's promise, I think, ultimately of rest, but it requires faith. Um, and we have to ask ourselves, uh, I think sometimes I can have a faith issue when God has lost influence in an area of my life. I know this is true for couples, right? Or even just in general friendships. The people who have the most influence in your life have the ability, because you trust them, have the ability to have the most influence because of the trust that they built in your life. And so we can, we can do this in our marriage. The, least, the less your spouse trusts you, the less influence you have in their life to make any changes or a friend or a business. And it surely isn't any different when we, how we view God. You must continually to seek to trust God for who he is or he will lose his influence in your life. 
and then you will wane in your faith. And I have to ask this of like, you know, do you trust God with what you don't see? You have to ask yourself that question. Do I trust him with what I don't see? I think, I got to admit to you, a lot of times for me, it's, it's very easy for me to take life into my own hands and then uh, kind of game it out so it is the best outcome for me. And, and there's times when you cannot do that. I know when we planted the church, it was not that way. Like, I couldn't game anything out. I was like, well, we started, and I thought I was going to be a cool, young adult, hip pastor who is like, you know, like, you know, obviously a lot more in shape, but, you know what I mean, maybe more beautiful. Anyways, I wasn't going to work. So anyway, I, I, I just I had these ideas, and God said, you know what, that's not what I want for you, and so you have to trust me in what you're going to do. When we came here to this campus, I fought trusting God until he got me out of his way. It's one of those things of like, I feel bad that I didn't fully trust him in that. You know, I still wanted to control it. You, you may relate to me a little bit in that, but do you still trust him with what you don't see? And, and how many trust falls? And this, will, this is a question for myself. It's not for you, so this is personally for me. How many trust falls do you need to have, Ryan, before you actually believe God's going to be there to catch you? Right? How many times do I need to be like, <gasps> Where it's like God's been there my whole life, every time. He'll always be there. I always have a hard time with this when we talk about this faithless type of thing. And then, and then um, what he's challenging these people at the time of like, this isn't going to be one of those things where all of a sudden things are going better and you get to rally around and say, see, we all said so. It's not that. He's looking for that tip of the spear faith in people. I always have a hard time with people who will say like, oh, when something's going really bad, they're, they're distant from somebody or something, but it's going really good. They're like, we always knew. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like how I'll do when my children are older and they do something good. I'm like, we always knew they were going to do that. <laughs> but, but if you ask me now, I'm not saying that. So like, it's one of those things. It, it, it's like, uh, uh, I won't be one of those people when the Detroit Lions win the Super Bowl. I cannot stand there and say, I supported this team my whole life. But there are people I know that they deserve to say, you were there. You believed the whole time. You had faith. You saw something no one would see and had faith and you did it. He's not talking about a weak faith. He's not talking about somebody who can come in at the last minute. He's talking about somebody who's at the tip of the spear. So here we go. Faithless, they will remain restless, just so you know. Hebrews 3, 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit. Now, he does this differently. He would normally have said, as in, like, the writers of, he's saying, Psalm. The writer would say, he says now he's updating their language to the Holy Spirit, which is common at this time there. But he's updating it now and merging that the word of God is, is, is God. The Holy Spirit, right, says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He's referring to something we'll get to later. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to test... And saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray. Now listen to the words, rebellion, hardened, astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. And I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. <laughs> That's a hard statement from God, right? And we never want to be where these people he's talking about is. So this is what he's setting up. Don't be those people of what the God himself is saying, I won't let him into my rest. He's introducing a very famous moment in history, and we're going to read it in this next section. But he's ultimately saying, those that do not believe do not receive rest. Faith, like our um, adoption into heaven, our uh, life as called saints, our new identity, our new creation, our eternal life and the moment that's happening now, everything is based around the fact that we have faith. It, it cannot be faked. It has to be real. The second part he gets into it, first he said, listen, remember, faithless will remain restless. 
And then it gets into a warning about those who are waning in their faith, who are struggling and thinking about leaving their faith. It's the danger of denying Christ and seeking life in worthlessness. He's going to warn them about that, and we need this warning today. And he's not going to talk about like that bad theology that you hear sometimes of like, oh, well, if you're in the middle of sinning and you die, then you will then not, st you'll stand before God and he will send you to hell. That's bad theology. That is not covered under what Christ did on the cross. If I happen to just uh, a curse while I get in a car accident and die, then I guess then that's the end of it. I don't, have you ever heard of this? Sorry, I was raised in this, so I know it well. So I always thought I was definitely never going to see heaven. And the thing is, is that he's not talking about Christians who doubt, right? Because there are those who doubt. I have doubted. There are, he's not talking about Christians who feel discouraged. He's not going to talk about that. It's not what you should hear in this because that's not how he meant it. Or even struggling with their faith. He's not talking about them either. Paul writes multiple times, remember your faith, remember your faith, because they were struggling in their faith. He's talking about people who, who literally say, I, I see freedom, I, I have the opportunity, I experience grace, and I turn my back on that, and I renounce that. I will not live for Jesus. He is nothing to me. I will return to my old ways. Ultimately, it's turning your back on, on God gladly. And returning to your old masters. That's what he's talking about. So when we hear it, people get really worried about this section of scripture. Like, oh, I'm going to lose my salvation if I, if I don't do everything right. That's not what it's talking about. You, you will be in a spiritual crisis if you think that way. Hebrews 3, uh, verse 12. Warning about the waning faith. Take care. Take care here. It doesn't mean like, take care. This means like, guys, guys, listen up. Pay attention. Your life depends on it. That's what take care is. It's just too polite for this. Brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Listen to those words. Leading you to fall away from the living God. An evil, unbelieving heart. This is not a Christian who has doubts sometimes. This isn't somebody who's gone through something hard and wonders, God, where are This is a turning from God and going astray. And he'll give an example in a second of what that looks like. But exhort one another every day. This is what we need to do. You see somebody struggling in their faith? Go and encourage their faith. You need, you need encouragement in your faith? Ask someone to encourage you because you're really discouraged. We're to exhort one another, lift each other up, encourage one another, speak truth into each other's life. Every day, as long as it's called today. Mm. Uh, listen to this word day. Now, he's going to make two points within his point. So he, remember earlier, back in Hebrews 3, 7, when he was quoting that Psalms, he said, today, if you hear my voice, right? So then he, he does a callback. He brings up today again, and I think this is interesting because he's making a point, and he's going to drive this point home to them who are saying that, 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 is, that this promise isn't for us. It was for our people, and Moses delivered it. So he's going to break this chain in a second. Today... He goes on to say, um, if you follow, if, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the, the deceitfulness of sin, of which would pull your heart into that direction. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. If you remember anything else, remember that. Your faith is longevity. Your faith isn't going to be perfect, but... But it might be very tattered by the end of your life. But your faith is holding firm to it. And he goes on to quote again, as it is said today, if you hear my voice, do not be hardened in your hearts as in the rebellion. What is this rebellion he's talking about? Because he's kind of alluding to it. And here's the clear example of what it looks like to walk away from God. And he gives it right here. He says, verse 16, for those, who, uh, so for those uh, who heard and yet rebelled, what, uh, it was, not all those who, was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? They all got the promise. They all experienced like, God's miraculousness. And then all God said to do was go into this land after all of that. And they couldn't. 
and with whom he was provoked for 40 years. It was not with those who was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? He's trying to connect them. They're at a pivotal point, like those back in Numbers, in Numbers 22. They're, 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 they're struggling, these people who came out of slavery and now are being called into something which is God's promised land, and they cannot trust God in faith. And so he's telling them, you're in that same position right now in your life. And of whom he, uh, sorry, to whom did he swear that they would not enter into his rest? But to those who were disobedient, disobedient, not in a way of like, oh, I didn't do what God asked me to do. And so I guess I'm not. going. No, this is a disobedience, a turning and leaving and choosing the other way. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. He's talking about Numbers 22. And if you don't know the story, when they came out of Egypt and God said, I'm bringing you to the promised land, he said, get me uh, a representative of spies from, uh, that I'm going to put together to scope out the land. And um, I need you to bring somebody from every single tribe. All 12 of them came. And they went out and they spent 40 days searching out the land, looking at the fruit, like, mm, looking at the livestock, looking at the land, this land that God promised them and said, this is yours. I gave it back with Abraham and you're going to get it now. And these people have settled in your spot. You're going to go here. And so they come back. 40 days makes sense of the 40 days in the desert. And, or 40 years in the desert. And so they come back and they're like, okay, so here's the report. It's unbelievable. But, and then they convince the people that they cannot do it. That God cannot give them this land. They saw how hard it is. They saw the difficulty of the people. They saw giants. They saw an impossible task. They forgot about the Red Sea. They forgot about, you know, 400 years of only knowing how to make bricks. And here they are now, and they can't trust. So 10 of them talk them out of it. Only two of them say, we can do it. And God says, I'm going to let you and everybody else except for those two will die in this land. I'll take another generation. And he's telling them, don't be in that spot. And you know what they did if you keep reading that chapter? They get scared, like, no, 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 sorry, God. And they try to go and take the land themselves. And, and Caleb is like, God's not even going to be with you. Moses is like, he, he's not going to go with you. You've already turned your back on him. And they lose horrifically and spend their time and die in the desert. He's presenting a problem that was presented then and he's saying don't be like those 10 spies what you see you have to see it in faith and so no matter how difficult which these people were going through you have to push through and you have to take those steps do not end up like those people at Kadesh and this is a reminder that's the, the the land they were in and they had that doubt and they lost the promised land and they lost rest Last one or four, and then we'll go into a quick one. It's not too late. And, and he wants to remind them, so you're waning faith, but also this faith, it's not too late for you. It hasn't passed you by. The promise is still the promise. Rest is still available, but it has to be chosen by faith. Let me read part of chapter four. Um, starting verse one. Therefore, while the promise of entering his promise still stands, it's not gone, it's still here. Lest us fear, or let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Meaning, remember Kadesh, remember the people, we cannot be there. That is a fearful place to be. For good news came to us just as it did to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united in faith with those who listened. Now he's bridging it over into their church. Like, we're bringing the truth. We're bringing you the good news. But you need to be united in faith with us. Let's not lose the pack. For we who have believed entered that rest, as he said. And, and I'll skip down here just a little bit. He alludes to something worth knowing. And um, he says, you know, God, who uh, his works finished the, uh, from the foundation of the world. So he stages it right. Verse 4, for he has spoken somewhere of the seventh day in this way. God rested on the seventh day. He quotes Genesis 2.2. 2. It says, from all of his works. And again, in this passage, he said, you shall not enter my rest. Meaning this, God is in a place of rest. 
And if you cannot come to him in faith, you will not enter that rest. And he goes back to the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a shadow of the real rest that God has for us. But let me tell you about Seventh-day rest really quick that he's talking about. Seventh-day rest, it, it's, he speaks, uh, is entirely different than ours. Seventh-day rest is a place through faith in uh, that you go, you come to through faith in the promise of Jesus. Seventh-day rest is the eternal state, a place that the Spirit lives and speaks to our soul and calms our body and mind. Seventh-day rest is the ceasing of work to find rest. It's not just the ceasing of work to find rest, but rather a belief that work is done in Christ, and now I rest with him. And ultimately, the seventh-day rest, it's, it's um, moving from temporal to eternal is what he's talking about. And it's moving from active to being. This is such a powerful thing um, that he is bringing us to. I'll skip all the way down to verse 10 uh, for time's sake. For whoever has entered God's rest also has rested from his works as God did from his. And... and, and and he is expanding the view of just having a temporary rest. He is saying there is rest now and yet to come. And he, through Jesus, is inviting us there. Verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This rest is available today. Do you believe God's word still stands is what he's asking them. Do you believe that his word is eternal? Do you believe what his word says cannot be broken, must stand? And that's what he's challenging about, which comes to the very last thing, the most famous verse probably in Hebrews, meaning his word and then requires our response. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God, the word of God. Now, the word of God has been said in multiple different ways, but the word of God here, you have to know this, the word of God is like the eyes of God. So it's kind of strange, but the word of God is the eyes of God, and he says it here, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. This is an analogy. Piercing the division of the soul and the spirit, meaning that it cuts deep in ways blades cannot cut of joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God sees all. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And this is, a, this is the strong warning I always used to think this was a, such a great passage. Like if, when I would quote it, I'd be like, okay, God, we trust your word because it pierces, it, it cuts the, the two-edged sword. This is not necessarily one of those like pump me up scriptures. This is a reckoning scripture that grounds us into the fact that there is truth and truth will judge us. And that truth sees us and it sees all truth. Now, I don't want to scare anybody. Because ultimately, this is for those who don't have Christ in their life. It should be scary because it comes with a judgment and it sees all things. You cannot fake it. Your best church smile can't get you past this word. Do you know what I'm saying? The greatest deed you could do could not get you past this word without Christ. You can't sell yourself good enough. To get past this word, there's no hiding and there's no reasoning. It's the only way that you will stand up against this word, this truth that knows all things and intentions and sees you righteous before God will be with the one who stands next to you. And this is kind of that chilling reminder of like, uh, you don't want to be standing alone in front of God with his word judging your heart. And standing on your own righteousness. You want to be standing before God with Jesus with you as your representative. Of which he gets into more. Vouching for you. As your founder and perfecter of your faith. The one who established your confession. And the one who stands in your place. That's who you want to be standing with when you come up against the very truth of God. You cannot stand alone before God like that.
You want to stand with Jesus. I, I think I'll close with this. This is a, 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 from a commentary I really liked. And he said, when he talks about this is the word of God, he says, with the expectation, the writer here is trying to get them to see, with the expectation that the readers will respond not with amen, but with their lives. That's the proper response to God's word, with your life. Not just a, hmm, that's good. And so when, when he goes through and he begins to lay this out, he is talking about there's a rest that you must not sacrifice and there is a way through it and it's your faith and you cannot wane. But if you are, ask for people to encourage you. And at the end of the day, the word that knows everything, you want to be there with Jesus standing next to you, confronted with that truth of God in that judgment. Can you guys uh, bow your heads before we take communion? I'll just say this. No matter what seems like giants in your eyes to you in opposition to Christ's promise, you, you, you have to do what the Israelites didn't do. You have to just keep walking. If he took you through the water and he delivered you from bondage, then you must keep walking. You must not turn back. It's a, it's a terrifying step of faith, but it is a step of faith. And remember what the reader is, or the writer is writing. Heed the warning of turning back. Remember to rest, rest uh, the rest of God, that what, the rest that he actually invited you into. Encourage one another to maintain faith. Choose to stand with Jesus before God, not alone. And Remember, only Jesus brings true rest. It's hard to think about that, but it is what anchors you. It is what grounds you. It is in that moment that you just realize that no matter what the storm is, I am at rest. I don't think we can do enough to try to bring it ourselves. Only God brings it. It's divine and it lasts. So if you're in here, I want to encourage you. If you are waning in your faith, if you are struggling, find someone to encourage you. Reach out. If you hear someone struggling in their faith as a fellow believer, cheerleader them up. Let them know what they're forgetting. And remind them that being a believer is hard, but the promise is too good. It's too good. God, we love you and we thank you, God. As we take communion, as we come up in this moment, just, uh, God, in these very humble moments of where we reflect on our life in light of what you did on the cross, Jesus, and what you brought us in life, I ask that it's just another reminder to remember your work, that the writer is reminding these people, let us be reminded in the same convicting way, your work was gracious and kind and loving and your work was worth everything I got in life no matter what we love you and we thank you in Jesus name amen you can stand with me during worship and come up anytime and take communion and head back to your seat